Obviously, next weekend is Easter. We celebrate the resurrection. We remember that world-changing event. And Friday, as I mentioned earlier, is going to be a special Good Friday service. So anticipation of this next week, which we will remember Jesus' passion, his Passion Week. I want to talk to you this morning about Gethsemane and Jesus' time in that garden the night before he died. So open your Bibles, if you would, to Mark's Gospel, chapter 14, and put your finger where verse 32 is. I want to posit a question to you. And that question is, how do you face death? How do you face death? Now, of course, none of us will really know how we face death until we reach that point. Isn't that true? We can have the best of intentions. Most of us who are believers would like to think that there would be some sense of expectation as we prepare to pass over the bar, so to speak. There would be some sense of maybe relief that we're finally through the trials and tribulations of this life. And there may be even mixed in a twinge of sadness for those we'll be leaving behind. How do you face death? But how we do face death depends largely on what we believe. What we believe about death, what we believe, whether or not there's an afterlife, what we believe about these things, and if we have lived our life consistently with what we say we believe. That is a tremendous impact on how we'll face death. The ancient Greeks and Romans have left us many, many accounts of their leaders and their heroes as they face death. And without exception, when you read these accounts, these people were calm and dispassionate as they faced their own deaths. The reason being was that they believed that this was their fate. They believed in fate. They didn't believe in the God that we believe in. Socrates is a classic example of this kind of stoic thought. Socrates, many of you are aware, uh, was condemned to drink hemlock as his means of execution. And the account goes of his life, the story is of his demise, that he, has, he had surrounded himself by all of his followers as he drank the hemlock and as he died. And as he did so, uh, he's coolly... Uh, just began to speak these ironic one-liners as he died. There was no big deal for him. By contrast, the Hebrews, and especially recorded in the apocryphal books of First and Second Maccabees, they recorded accounts of the deaths of their major figures and their major heroes. And they didn't make those accounts and portray their heroes as being cool and detached, like Socrates and the Greeks and the Romans. No, instead, their heroes are shown to be hot-blooded, to be fearless, and to be praising God as their persecutors hack them, 
hacked them to death. So these were, these were outgoing people. These people were, were lively, if you will, if I can use that term, as they faced their own deaths. I say that because nothing in uh, either of those traditions, the Stoic tradition of the ancient Greeks and Romans, nor the traditions of the Hebrews and how those people faced death, nothing in those traditions, indeed nothing in all of ancient literature, resembles the portrayal that Mark gives us of Jesus' final answers and final hours as he himself faced death. Look with me at these verses. Mark records, They went to a place called Gethsemane, and Jesus said to his disciples, Sit here while I pray. He took Peter, James, and John along with him, and he began to be deeply distressed and troubled. My soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death, he said to them. Stay here and keep watch. Going a little further, he fell to the ground and prayed that if possible, the hour might pass from him. Abba, Father, he said, everything is possible for you. Take this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. It's here in this account, and again in the parallel accounts in the other Gospels, that we see Jesus just hours now before his execution. He's opening his heart. He opens his heart to his own disciples. He opens his heart to his Father. He opens his heart to all those who would read this account in the ensuing centuries and millennia. And it's here that Jesus lays bare his struggles. He lays bare his agony. He lays bare his fears about facing death. You don't always think about Jesus this way. But you see him now laying bare all of these things. He turns to God and he pleads, Is there a way this cup can be taken from me? Is there any way I can be let off the hook? Is there any way I can get out of this mission? Matthew, in his account, has Jesus repeating this request three times. And Luke, in his account, says this, And being in anguish, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat was like drops of blood falling to the ground. He literally sweat blood. There is a medical condition called hematridosis in which the anxiety is so intense that the peripheral blood vessels under the surface of the skin actually burst and the blood mixes with your sweat and you literally sweat drops of blood. I don't think any of us have experienced tension and stress and anxiety to that level. Would you agree? But this is what Jesus experienced. The writer to the Hebrews chronicles it this way. He offered up prayers and petitions with loud cries and tears to the one who could save him from death. Up to this point in the Gospels, and, and, and more particularly up to this point in Mark's Gospel, Jesus has been completely in control. He is unperturbable. Nothing has surprised him up to this point. 
He always knew what was going on. Nothing could jar Jesus. But then all of a sudden, in the garden, we read that he began to be deeply distressed and troubled. He began to be deeply distressed and troubled. Notice, began. It increased in intensity. It increased in intensity. The Greek word translated deeply distressed actually means astonished. Jesus is never caught by anything. Nothing ever really astonished him. He knows us. He knows what to expect. And now here, he's astonished. If you go back and read Mark's gospel again up to this point, Jesus has been totally unflappable. But here suddenly, suddenly something he sees, something he realizes, something he experiences, stuns the eternal Son of God. You have to just take that in, try to wrap your mind around this. Jesus, Mark says, is also troubled. That word translated means to be overcome with horror. I don't know if we can possibly understand the degree of horror that he was experiencing. Whatever he saw, whatever he experienced, caused horror to be surrounded, overcome with horror. Many of us remember the planes that flew into the World Trade Center 14 years ago now. Can you believe that? Watching that on television, it's almost surreal. But there was a certain horror to it, wasn't there? The people on the ground, certainly the, 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 the first responders, all those people, were horrified. The spate of school shootings that we've seen on the news these past several years, the people who've been there and experienced that firsthand were horrified at what they saw, what they experienced. But I submit to you, none of that compares with the horror that overcame Jesus. He was horrified. He says, my soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. He's saying, in effect, his anguish was enough to kill him. Sometimes we are deeply anguished about something, and we say the same thing. We say, I feel like I'm going to die. This is going to kill me. You understand something of what he was going through. Jesus' struggle is unique. Not only in the ancient accounts of the deaths of prominent figures, but it's unique also among those martyrs of church history. You have many, many accounts. Fox's Book of Martyrs. A number of you probably have that in your library. Uh, amazing, amazing book. Early Church Christian Fathers. Another amazing book. Chronicles uh, the Early Church of the Christian Fathers. But those books and many others have accounts of Christian men and women being killed for their faith, thrown to wild beasts, cut in pieces, burned at the stake. And it appears that many of them, when you read these accounts, it appears that many of them faced their deaths much more calmly than Jesus did. Polycarp, who was the bishop of Smyrna, that is present-day Izmir in Turkey, he lived about the... Uh, 
first half of the second century, he was a disciple of the Apostle John's. And near the end of his life, he was taken before a magistrate and told that he would be burned at the stake. He was given one more chance to recant, to um, deny his Christian faith and avoid, therefore, execution. He was 86 years old. And here was his reply, as recorded by witnesses. He said, the fire you threaten burns but an hour and is quenched after a little. You do not know the fire of the coming judgment, he said to the magistrate. But why do you delay? Come, do what you will. Oh my, oh my. Come, I'm ready to be burned at the stake. Calm. Two men, Nicholas Ridley and Hugh Latimer, also were burned at the stake for their faith in Oxford, England in the year 1555. They were tied side by side at that stake. And when the fire was lit at their feet, Latimer said, be of good comfort, Master Ridley, and play the man. We shall this day light such a candle by God's grace in England as I trust shall never be put out. Stiff upper lip. Calm. Calm. Why is it that many of Jesus' followers, and you read these testimonies again and again and again, why is it that many of Jesus' followers have died better than Jesus? Jesus must have been facing something that Polycarp, that Ridley, that Latimer never faced. Something none of the other martyrs ever faced. You see, something happened in that garden. Jesus saw something. He felt something. He sensed something. And it shocked the unshockable Son of God. Horrified him. Astonished him. What was it? What was it that he saw? What was it that he sensed? He was facing something beyond physical torment. He was facing something beyond physical death, something so much worse. In that garden, he was smothered by a mere whiff of what he would go through on that cross. Did he know he was going to die? Yes. He told his disciples repeatedly that he was going to die. But now he's beginning to taste He's beginning to taste what he will experience on the cross, and it goes far beyond physical torture, goes far beyond physical death. What is this terrible thing? What is this terrible thing? It's at the very heart of Jesus' prayer. Let me call your attention again to verse 36 of our passage. He says, Take this cup from me. Say that with me. Take this cup from me. In the Old Testament, in the Hebrew Scriptures, 
The cup is a metaphor for the wrath of God on human evil. The wrath of God. It's an image of divine justice poured out on evil and injustice. Ezekiel 23, we read, you will drink a cup large and deep, the cup of ruin and desolation, and tear your breasts. In Isaiah chapter 51, God speaks of the cup that made you stagger, the goblet of my wrath. All of his life, all of his life here on earth, because of Jesus' eternal, perfect relationship with his Father and with the Spirit, if I can use this term, because of his eternal dance with his Father and the Spirit. Whenever Jesus turned to the Father, the Spirit flooded him with love. Do you remember what happened at Jesus' baptism? Do you remember what happened at the Mount of Transfiguration? A voice said what? This is my son whom I love, my only son. What happened at his baptism, what happened at the Mount of Transfiguration, visibly and audibly, every time Jesus prayed, those things happened invisibly and inaudibly. Every time he went to his father, he would hear, you are my son whom I love. You're my only son. I love you. You talk about encouragement. You talk about strength. Talk about affirmation. But here in the garden, in the garden of Gethsemane, when he turns to his father, all he can see is wrath. All he can see is the abyss. All he can see is that chasm will separate him from his father. All he can see is the nothingness of the cup. He would become sin. And holiness is totally repulsed by sin. Habakkuk speaks of God this way. He says, your eyes are too pure to look on evil. You cannot tolerate wrong. Beloved, God is the source of all love. He's the source of all life. He's the source of all light. He's the source of all that is coherent. He's the source of all coherence. Would you rather be Coherent or incoherent? <laughs> Sometimes we don't mind being a little incoherent, right? That means together, being together. Things are making sense. God is the author of all that. He holds it all together. And Jesus is seeing exclusion from him now. And exclusion from the Father is, in fact, exclusion from all love, exclusion from all light, exclusion from all life, and exclusion from all coherence. 
He sees and senses his life is going to come apart. This is hell itself. Exclusion. He began to experience then the spiritual, the cosmic, the infinite disintegration. Just began to experience it. The disintegration of everything he known. All that would happen when he would become separated from his father on the cross. And here in the garden, he only began to experience a foretaste of the full wrath of his father when he would hang on that cross. I've heard people say, I don't like the idea of a wrath, a wrath of God. I don't like that. I don't like that. I want a loving God. I understand that. Timothy Keller in his book, King's Cross, says the problem is that if you want a loving God, you have to have an angry God. They go hand in hand. Think about it for a second. Can loving people get angry? Yeah, absolutely. They get angry not in spite of their love, but they get angry because of their love. In fact, the more closely and deeply you love people in your life, the angrier you can get. When you see people who are harmed, people who are abused, you get angry. If you see people abusing themselves, you get angry at them out of love. I love you. I love you. Stop it. I'm, I'm, I'm upset with you. I'm frustrated with you. Stop it. You see, your senses of love and justice, they're not in opposition. They're activated together. They come together. If you see people destroying themselves and destroying other people and you don't get angry, it's because you don't care. You don't love them. There's nothing to get angry over. You're too absorbed in yourself, too cynical maybe, too hard. The more loving you are, the more ferociously angry you will be at whatever harms your beloved. Isn't that true? The greater the harm, the more resolute your opposition will be. When we think of God's wrath, we think also of God's justice. We think of his justice. Those who care about justice, do we care about justice? How do you feel when justice is trampled on, when justice is not served? Are you happy about it? No, we get angry. If you care about justice, you get angry when you see justice trampled on. And we should expect that a perfectly just God would get angry also. But we don't often ponder how much his anger is also a function of his love and his goodness. You can't separate them. The Bible tells us that God loves everything that he's made. That's one of the reasons he's angry at what's going on in his creation. He's angry at anyone or anything that is destroying the people and the world that he loves. His capacity for love is so much greater than ours. 
and the cumulative extent of evil in this world is so vast, is so vast, that the word wrath is, is not even able to do justice to the evil in this world. Do you remember in Genesis chapter 6 when the whole world was filled with evil and God reached a point where he said, I'm sorry I made man and he poured out his wrath. What did he do? He sent a flood, killed everybody except for Noah and his family. So I submit to you, it makes no sense to say, I don't want a wrathful God, I want a loving God. If God is loving, if God is good, he must be angry at evil. Angry enough to do something about it. That's what the cross is all about. Consider this also. If you don't believe in a God of wrath, you have no idea of your own value. Think with me. You see, a God without wrath has no need, no need whatsoever, to go to the cross and suffer incredible agony and die in order to save you. Picture, if you will, on the left, a God who pays nothing in order to love you. Costs him nothing to love you. Picture on the right the God of the Bible who, because he's angry at evil, must go to the cross. Must absorb the debt. Must pay the ransom. Must suffer immense torment. How do you know how much the free love God loves you or how valuable you are to him or her or it? How do you know? You see, that God's love is just a concept. You don't know it at all. This God pays no price in order to love you. Is that real love? No, of course not. Cost me nothing to love you. It's, then, my, then your love is worth what? Nothing. How valuable are you to the God of the Bible? Immensely so. Immensely so. Valuable enough that he would go to the lengths and the depths that he goes to. See, your conception of God's love, your conception of your value in his sight will only be as big as your understanding of his wrath. We don't normally think that way. But you have to appreciate his wrath against evil. Let me ask you another question. When the circumstances of your life are giving you the desires of your heart, you following with me? When the circumstances of your life are giving you the desires of your heart, how do you feel? Whoopee! 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 You're happy, you're content, you go, whoa, this is great! Now, suffering, suffering happens, we might say, when there is a gap between the desires of your heart and the circumstances of your life. And the bigger the gap, 
the greater the suffering. The question is, what do you do when that gap gets too wide? What happens then? What choices do we make? One response is to change the circumstance and to get off the path that's taking you to and through that suffering. And of course, sometimes that's the right response. Our present circumstances may really have to change. There may be a very unhealthy relationship that needs to be ended or maybe uh, put on a different course or a medical condition that needs to be treated more aggressively. We should not accept all circumstances with a passive fatalism. Que raw, sirrah. What will be, will be. No. Many people, and I think you understand this, many people have a pattern. A pattern of dealing with almost any suffering by skipping out. By breaking promises. By pulling out of relationships. They invariably try to go someplace where their desires are satisfied because they consider their desires all important. And when you consider your desires all important, then that makes your circumstances, guess what? Negotiable. I'm going to change them. I'm going to change them. They're willing to do practically anything to avoid suffering. The problem is that life circumstances rarely oblige. Have you noticed that? Try a new set of circumstances. And in six months or so, you'll be looking for another new set of circumstances. Years ago, I read a book. It was fascinating. It marked me. The title was The Myth, M-Y-T-H, of the Greener Grass. I read that book and went, oh, my gosh. <laughs> the grass may look greener, but it's not greener. you still got to mow it. Ancient... Ancient um, mystic practices and religions and philosophies, Buddhism, Hinduism, and such, and all that stuff has been translated into what we've, been, what we've known as the New Age movement. It's nothing more than the same old stuff just repackaged. Ancient mysticism. These things don't advocate the response of changing your circumstance. They say that always avoiding suffering has no virtue, has no integrity at all. To say, when there's a gap between my desires and my circumstances, change my, uh, change my circumstances, they say that violates the very tenets of their beliefs, violates the very tenets of their, 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 their thoughts. Instead, they would say to us, what you need to do is suppress your desires. Get on top of them. Become cool, detached, dispassionate, much like the Stoics of the ancient Near East, much like the Greeks and the, and the Romans. See, when you get on top of your emotions, you suppress those desires, you can keep your promises, then you can stay on the path. After all, the circumstances are your fate. You can't do anything about those. The desires are just an illusion. Of course, I think you'll agree, there are times when we do need to suppress our desires, 
Sometimes we have inordinate desires, wrong desires, and they can often be destructive. But to eliminate all desire is to eliminate our ability to love. And God has made us to love. When you look at Jesus here in the Garden of Gethsemane, he appears to be taking the first approach. He's certainly not taking the way of detachment because he's pouring out his heart. He's being undone, if you will. And he's honestly and desperately asking God to change the circumstances, praying that if possible, the hour might pass from him. He cries out, Abba, Father, everything is possible for you. Take this cup from me. He's contending with his father, asking him for a way out, asking for another way to rescue us without having to go personally through what he has seen. But if we look closely, Jesus is not actually taking his circumstances into his own hands. In fact, he's obeying. He's relinquishing control over his circumstances and submitting his desires to the will of his Father. That's a great exercise, isn't it? Relinquishing control over your circumstances and putting them into his hands. He says to God, yet not what I will, but what you will. He's wrestling, but he's obeying. He's wrestling, but he's obeying. We know something of that, don't we, in our own lives. Now, it would be possible at this 11th hour, if you will, it would be possible for Jesus to abort his mission and to leave us to perish. True? Would you be tempted? Let him perish. It would be possible for him to abort his mission, but he doesn't consider that as an option. He's pleading with the Father to carry out the mission some other way, but he doesn't ask him to abandon it. Why? Why? Because as horrible as the cup is, he knows that his immediate desire to be spared must bow before his ultimate desire to spare us. What parent has not gone through that? To spare their child. You know, often what seems to be our deepest desires are really our loudest desires. <laughs> Do you know how, and especially when you find yourself in a place of great, great, great stress, maybe temptation, uh, maybe intense pain, sometimes you just can't think straight. Anybody know what I'm talking about? We even say it, I, just, I, just, I can't think straight. Those are not the times you make major decisions. In the midst of deep loss or grief, you don't make major decisions in those times. But when you do, very often you find yourself turning on the people who love you and making shockingly self-destructive decisions. 
Who of us haven't, in the wake of something like that, gone, what was I thinking? What was I thinking? Sometimes we'll say and do things that we know are not only hurtful, but actually undermine the people and the values that we love the most. But notice this. At one of the supreme moments, at one of the supreme moments of personal pain in the history of the world, Jesus doesn't do that. He says, yet not what I will, but what you will. Yet not what I will, but what you will. He's not even saying to his father, I think you're wrong, but I'm going to let you win this one. No. He's saying, I trust you no matter what I'm feeling right now. Say that with me. I trust you no matter what I'm feeling right now. Let's do it again. I trust you no matter what I'm feeling right now. He turned his will. I trust you no matter what I'm feeling right now. And I know that your desires are ultimately my desires. Do what we both know must be done. And in so doing, Jesus is absolutely obedient to the will of his Father. Yet not what I will, but what you will. He is actually subordinating his loudest desires to his deepest desires by putting them into his Father's hands. That's when you know you really trust God. As if to say, if the circumstances of life do not satisfy the present desires of my heart, I'm not going to suppress them, but I'm not going to surrender to them either. I know that they will only be fully satisfied eventually in the Father. I will trust Him. I will obey Him. I will put myself in His hands, and I will go forward. Jesus doesn't deny his emotions. He doesn't avoid the suffering. No. You know what he does? He loves into the suffering. He loves into the suffering. In the midst of his suffering, he obeys for the love of the Father and for the love of us. And that love, that love whose obedience is wide and long and high and deep enough to dissolve a mountain of God's righteous wrath. That love is the love that every human being has been looking for all their lives. Somebody. There's got to be somebody. There's got to be something that I can trust and depend on that will never, ever fail. Something I can hang my life on that I can trust. Somebody who will love me, warts and all.
No family love. No friend love. No mother love. That's a great love. No spousal love. No romantic love. Nothing could possibly satisfy us like his love. Oh, when you know his love, when you know his love, you're home. You're safe. You're safe. All these other kinds of loves will let us down at some point. They're not strong enough to hang our life on. And often we do. And when we're let down, we are really upset. All those other kinds of love will let us down. Only God's love never will. This is what Jesus trusted. Jesus loves me. This I know. For the Bible tells me so. Jesus loves me. This I know, for the Bible tells me so. Jesus loves me. This I know, for the Bible tells me so. Jesus loves me. This I know, for the Bible tells me so. Jesus loves me. This I know, for the Bible tells me so. Can we say with Jesus, yet not what I will, but what you will? Yet not what I will, but what you will. Yet not what I will, but what you will. Yet not what I will, but what you will. Let that be your mantra throughout the week. Whisper that to him throughout the day as you rise in the morning. Let not what I will, but what you will. As you go throughout your day, at the end of your day, when you lay your head on your pillow, Lord, let not my will, but your will. Whisper that prayer to him, that acknowledgement to him. Bow your heads. Think with me. If you died today, you left here and you got in a horrible car accident, suffered a stroke, a heart attack. If you died today, would you go to heaven? Would you go to hell? Most people would like to say, I'd like, I go to heaven. But you have to ask yourself, on what basis could I go to heaven? Because I'm a good person, a nice person? Or because I've trusted Jesus, who loves me and died for me? Jesus, who took my sins and my guilt. Jesus, who took God's wrath that was due me. I trusted Jesus. The Bible says the wages of sin is death. We're all sinners. People don't like to talk about that these days. They don't like to acknowledge that. They don't want to talk about sin like they don't want to talk about wrath. But these things are true, and they must be addressed. Every single human being is conceived in sin. We commit acts of sin because we are by nature sinners. We are by nature objects of wrath. 
God is not sending people to hell. His purpose is to rescue us from hell, to pluck us, if you will, as a brand from the fire. And he offers us good news. He said, believe in my son. I've loved you so much that I sent my one and only son that you would not have to perish, but you'd have everlasting life. There's something in us that hungers to live. We struggle to live. We want life to the max. And Jesus says, I came and you should have it to the max. And he offers that to us. If you were to die today, if you don't know Jesus Christ, you would spend eternity in that place of disintegration, incoherence, away from all life, all light, all love, you would be in hell forever and ever and ever. And if that concerns you, I want to make you an offer to receive Jesus Christ this morning as your Savior. You don't need to understand all the theology right now, but just need to know that you're a sinner and you're ready and willing to repent of your sin and turn to him and say, Jesus, forgive me. I've sinned against you. Forgive me. Save me. If there's anybody here this morning that that is the desire of your heart, I want to ask you, the Bible says you, you must confess this publicly. I'm going to ask you simply, while everybody else's heads are bowed, just to look up, look up, catch my attention, raise your hand, get my attention, say, Pastor, I'm going to pray that. I'm praying that prayer right now. I want Jesus to save me. Anybody at all, just raise your hand right now. God bless you. I see your hand. I see your hand back there on the aisle. Anybody else? Right now. Right now. Don't wait. Research tells us that the average time it takes for the brain to engage and make a decision is 68 milliseconds. Milliseconds. Make that decision now. Don't harden your heart. There's others of you who've made this decision in the past. You received Jesus, but there's still active sin and disobedience in your life. And you have no power, you have no real joy. You're going through the motions. It's because there's sin still there, willingly. And I would ask, would you be willing this morning to confess that sin to him right where you're sitting? Repent of that sin and say, Jesus, Jesus, I commit this to you. I repent of this sin. Fill me with your spirit. Fill me with your spirit that I might have power and joy that I could live the Christian life as you've designed it. If that's a prayer that you, were, you want to pray, then you also raise your hand, look up at me, get my attention, say, Pastor, I'm going to pray that prayer. I need to repent of some stuff in my life. I see your hand, sir. God bless you. I see your hand, man. Back there, yes. Okay, I see those hands. I see your hand too, man. I see your hand way back there in the aisle. Okay, make this your prayer now. God, I'm sorry. Jesus, I'm sorry. And I repent of, and you fill in the blank. You say it, you name it. He already knows, but you need to name it. I turn from it right now and fill me with your spirit. Give me your power to walk a holy life before you. Make that your prayer. Amen, church? Amen. Amen.